Thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Centre for Catholic Studies at Durham University in the UK, a centre for Catholic theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at centreforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following paper was presented in October 2019 by Simon Oliver of Durham University. It was presented as part of the Catholic Theology Research Seminar Series and is entitled Salus and Sanctus on Salvation as Health and Well-Being. About the scope of salvation address matters of predestination, whether single or double, election and universalism. Secondly, how are we saved? Reflection on the mechanism of salvation attracts a number of further questions, especially that of the rich young man in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, and Paul and Silas's jailer in Acts 16, what must we do to be saved? Can we do anything? So begin debates about grace and nature and righteousness and works, and the place of the church and its sacraments in the economy of salvation. These are attended by Christological questions. What does it mean to claim Jesus Christ as Saviour? What are the implications for our understanding of the person and work of Christ? The third question arises, from what are we saved? In the Hebrew Scriptures, salvation is understood largely in political terms. The people plead to be saved from the surrounding nations who threaten violent invasion. As the Babylonian exile comes to an end, the elite of Judah are delivered back to their homeland and begin a process of political and liturgical rebuilding and renewal. The Israelites' cry to be saved from the hand of their enemies is nevertheless rooted in a need to be saved from sin, for the political travails of God's people are the result of Israel's sins of infidelity and idolatry. The consequence of the sinfulness of Judah and Israel is deliverance into the hands of their enemies. They are laid waste. In the Christian tradition, what are sin's consequences? From what are we saved? A just punishment? Even an eternal punishment for all the unbaptized? Are we saved from estrangement from God or annihilation? There is a fourth and final soteriological question. What are we saved for? Into what are we delivered? Typical answers to that question refer to the beatific vision, eternal life, or simply bliss. And here we are drawn also to eschatology, and whether any element of the eschaton is presaged in this life. Amidst the complexity and extent of these soteriological questions, it's worth remembering that no church of East or West has proffered in its official teaching one set of answers or one picture of salvation as superior or more truthful than any other that we find in scripture and tradition. The reason for this is very simple. The theologies, images and metaphors which surround the drama of salvation in the scriptures are many and various. We have the metaphor of overcoming the strong man in Matthew 12 and Luke 11, or the metaphor of the whole armour of God, which will save us in spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. We have the bucolic image of Christ the Good Shepherd, who seeks out, <coughs> gathers and protects the sheep. Perhaps the most dominant theologies, particularly in the Western tradition, have focused on the collage 
of sacrificial, juridical and ransom images that we find, for example, in Romans, the first letter to Timothy, Galatians and Hebrews. From these scriptural texts, theologians have surmised, for example, that Christ pays a debt to God the Father on our behalf, offering satisfaction for our sins, or God exacts a punishment demanded by his righteousness. God the Father pours out his wrath on Christ, who stands in our place as a substitute, so that we, looking on as passive spectators over an outpouring of loving wrath, as it were within the Godhead itself, are plucked from a punishment that is rightly and justly ours. The idea that salvation is released from debt, a debt owed to God, is prevalent not only in the New Testament letters, but also appears in the Gospels. The trespasses or sins from which we are to be delivered when we pray the Lord's Prayer in English, for example, the Ophelemata, are simply those crushing financial debts, ubiquitous among the common citizenry of first century Palestine, for which one will be thrown into prison and from which there is no prospect of release. The prayer asked for remission from perasmos, the court trial. Salvation is therefore understood in juridical terms as satisfaction for a debt owed. Nevertheless, satisfaction is understood in many and various ways. It's long been claimed that one of medieval Christianity's most influential texts on salvation, Anselm's Cur Deus Homo, offers a view of the atonement of satisfaction as penal and substitutionary. Now that view has been rebutted by a number of commentators recently, and Rick is about to publish an important essay showing that Aquinas did not hold a view of Christ's satisfaction as a poena satisfactoria, in the sense of a satisfactory punishment, which Aquinas would refer to as a poena simpliciter, but rather a satisfaction akin to a medicinas poenales, a kind of bitter medicine which must be taken to cure sickness <coughs> and evade death. So poena satisfactoria on Rick's reading of Aquinas, which, with which I completely agree, is a penitential rather than penal sacrifice which restores friendship or communion with God, much like the Levitical sacrifices of the Jewish law. It brings salus, health, well-being, salvation. Now, nothing that I want to say this afternoon is a denial of the central importance of the law, of substitution or representation, of satisfaction and sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ in the Christian theology of salvation. Nevertheless, I can't help remarking in passing some theologies which wallow in a very literal understanding of juridical and penal themes, as well as an anthropomorphic literalism with respect to divine anger and wrath, tend to leave us with morally contemptible understandings of salvation and damnation, and the impression that what we need saving from is God. So David Bentley Hart has forcefully argued in his new book that all shall be saved. Rather, I would like to make some remarks about another image of salvation, which it seems to me is prominent in the Gospels and Acts, 
and is prevalent particularly, but by no means exclusively, in the Eastern patristic tradition. Namely, the view of salvation as a process of healing, health, and well-being. Beyond the etymological connection between salvation and being made well in Scripture, as we will see, they attach to one and the same word in both Greek and Latin. The reasons I would like to focus particularly on salvation as healing, health and well-being are twofold. First, the image of medicine and healing helps us to understand more clearly the relationship between grace and nature, the way the wholesome medicine of the Gospel and the work of Christ the Physician restores our nature. Yet this treatment does more than simply restore us, for it offers us an eternal well-being in God's presence. In fact, beatitude, holiness or sanctity, is a participation in the well-being of God. In examining the use of healing and health with respect to grace and nature, I will examine some of Aquinas' remarks about the crafts of medicine and teaching, <coughs> for salvation or well-being belong to both the soul its intellection and its desire, and to the body. The second reason I wish to focus on salvation as healing and health is more hesitant and cautionary. In a culture dominated by medicine and competing notions of health and well-being, how are we to understand the salus, or health, which God offers in Christ? Does healing occur in the soul, the body, or both? Culturally, the image of salvation as the healing of sickness is problematic because the link between sin, moral culpability, and disease or disability is very problematic for us. At the same time, narratives of salvation attach very clearly to modern medicine and also to the medico-technological practices of transhumanism, which seek to make us better than well. I'm going to argue that medicine and transhumanism, when understood as salvific in the literal sense of delivering us from the finitude of human nature, destroy rather than perfect human nature, and they simply become perverted theologies. So this paper is going to fall into three sections. First, I will examine the scriptural and patristic background to the understanding of salvation as healing, health and well-being. We will see that the physical healing miracles in the Gospels and Acts serve as figures for the healing of sin and the eschatological age to come. Healing occurs in a number of spheres, physical, intellectual, spiritual. In Christian theology, it is not the case that physical healing of infirmity or disease is a mere metaphor for a more essential spiritual healing. Whilst one can have one without the other, in the end, the concern is for the whole human person, body and soul. Secondly, I will examine Aquinas' use of the medical and teaching arts as a way of understanding the salvific operation of grace in relation to nature. I'm going to suggest that this provides a little more clarity concerning the image of Christ as physician and the gospel as wholesome medicine. And finally, I will explore why the association of salvation with healing is both beneficial and problematic in our modern context. I'm going to conclude with some very brief remarks concerning why the tendency to view modern medicine and transhumanist technologies as salvific is false 
and warped theology. So first to scripture and patristic texts on salvation as health and well-being. We can begin by making the straightforward observation that the Greek often translated as saved, as saved, soteria, is derived from sozo, meaning also to heal. In Latin we have salvare, to heal, salvos, to be made whole, and salus, health and well-being, as well as salvation. In Christ's healing miracles, when Christ states, your faith has made you well, for example, to Bartimaeus the blind beggar in Mark 10, we might also translate this phrase, your faith has saved you. Modern translations vary in their rendering. Some say, your faith has made you well. Others render it, your faith has saved you. There are, of course, other terms used for healing. For example, um, therapuo. But certain healing miracles include a teaching by Jesus that faith has led to health, wholeness, and salvation. A good example is the cleansing of the ten lepers, a healing miracle unique to the Gospel of Luke the Physician. Whilst on his way to Jerusalem, in the region of Samaria and Galilee, Jesus is approached by ten lepers who ask for mercy. He tells them to show themselves to the priest. Whilst on their way, they are cleansed. Only one, a foreigner, a Samaritan, returns in gratitude and prostrates himself before Christ. This return appears to be the completion of his healing, for Jesus says, get up, go on your way, your faith has made you well, your faith has saved you. There is a healing of this man's disease. His soul, as he comes back to Christ in gratitude, and the cultural divisions which separated the Samaritans. In 15 healing miracles, Mark's Gospel immediately announces Christ as the one who restores health. More than half of those occur in the first five chapters. All but one of those is paralleled in one or both of the other synoptics. Whilst Luke has five unique healing miracles, if we include the raising of the son of the widow of Nain. In many of those healing miracles, for example, the healing of the paralysed man lowered to Christ through the roof of a house by his friends, told by all three synoptics, Christ's power to heal is one and the same as his power to forgive sin. Luke continues the connection between healing and salvation in Acts. For example, in chapter 3, in the name of Christ, Peter heals the lame man at Solomon's portico in the temple, and in response to the people's amazement, he preaches. This provokes Peter's arrest by the captain of the temple, some of the priests and Sadducees. At the hearing the next day, Peter declares this, and this is the first quote on your handout. Rulers of the people and elders, if we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who was sick, and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, 
it has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. Now, of course, none of these healing miracles, like any of the miracles, is an end in itself. They bear an eschatological, salvific importance as the visible sign of a deeper and more extensive cosmic healing. Irenaeus of Lyon, writing in the second century, connects healing, creation and salvation in the second of the quotations you've got before you. It's worth quoting it at length. Irenaeus writes, For the maker of all things, the word of God, who did also from the beginning form man, when he found his handiwork impaired by wickedness, performed upon it all kinds of healing. At one time he did so as regards each separate member, as it is found in his handiwork. At another time he did once for all restore man sound and whole in all points, preparing him perfect for himself unto the resurrection. For what was his object in healing them to their original condition, if those parts which had been healed by him were not in a position to obtain salvation? For if it was merely a temporary benefit which he conferred, he granted nothing of importance to those who were the subjects of his healing. Or how can they remain, maintain that the flesh is incapable of receiving the life which flows from him? when it received healing from him. For life is brought about through healing, and incorruption through life. He therefore who confers healing, at the same time, does also confer life. And he who gives life, also surrounds his own handiwork with incorruption. I'm going to come back to that quotation later. The extent to which Christianity was a religion of miraculous healing in the first four centuries is a matter of debate amongst early historians of, amongst historians of the early church. Gary Ferngren, for example, argues that supernatural healing, whilst alluded to in general terms by figures such as Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Origen and Tertullian, was associated more particularly with pagan and heretical groups than with the practices and experiences of the Christian church in the first three centuries. On the other hand, the image of Christus Medicus, Christ the Physician, although not directly scriptural, verbatim that phrase, occurs at least as early as Ignatius of Antioch, martyred around 107. In his letter to the Ephesians, Ignatius writes that we have also as a physician the Lord our God, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, the only begotten Son and Word, before time began, being incorporeal, he was in the body, being impassible, he was in a passable body, being immortal, he was in a mortal body, being life, he became subject to corruption, that he might free our souls from death and corruption and heal them, and might restore them to health when they were diseased with ungodliness and wicked lust. Ignatius later writes of the Eucharist, as the medicine of immortality. The image of Christ the physician was prominent amongst later patristic theologians, notably Augustine, in Sermon 38, his quotation number three, and whatever he did for the health of bodies, 
He did it not that they should be forever, whereas at the last he will give eternal health even to the body itself. But because those things which were not seen were not believed, by means of these temporal things which were seen, he built up faith in those things which were not seen. Images of health, healing and well-being were prominent in Christian liturgies of initiation. For example, in the mystagogies of the 4th century, which used rites associated with the healing of sight, hearing and speech as preparations for baptism. If you want to know about that, ask Hannah Lucas about her fabulous research on 4th century mystagogy. There are also some less alluring uses of medical imagery in relation to salvation, notably Eusebius's quotation of a Hippocratic worth entitled Perifuso, a treatise essentially about flatulence. In the ecclesiastical history, Eusebius writes that Christ is like some excellent physician who, to save those who are sick, Though he, lie, though he sees the ills, yet touches the foul spots, and for another's misfortune, reaps suffering for himself. So he by himself saved from the very abyss of death, us who were not merely sick or oppressed, but grievous sore, but, or oppressed by grievous sores and wounds already putrefied, but were even lying among the dead. What is beyond doubt is the extent to which the church was then involved in the care of the sick and fostered interest in medical practice in antiquity and the Middle Ages. There was no pagan communitarian philanthropy towards the sick. By contrast, Christianity, surely motivated in large part by the parable of the Good Samaritan and Christ's cure of the Samaritan leper, placed high priority on the care of the sick stranger even one, uh, every one of whom was a neighbour. Interest in the practice of medicine and the art of healing was fostered in Christian monasticism and led, of course, to the creation of hospitals, places of hospitality for the sick. The evidence is abundant from Anselm's interest in medicine, described in a fascinating recent article by Charles Gasper, this university, to the remarkable collection of gynaecological works in Durham Priory Library. The image of Christ the Physician and the link between the healing of disease or disability is clearly an image for an ultimate healing from the root cause of all human anguish, confusion and pain, namely sin. The healing arts become a notable example of human action towards, towards the good and a metaphor also for salvation. Aquinas uses the image of health and the art of medicine in a number of places in the summer, beginning in question one, when he states that sacra doctrina, the holy teaching of the church, delivers us to salus, health, well-being, as well as salvation. It has a healing effect on the appetitive and intellective soul, on reason itself, and I'll come back to that shortly. But I'd now like to examine Aquinas' use of medicine as an example for human action and teaching and healing. So where to begin? For Aquinas, nature is an interior principle of motion and rest. Human nature, for example, 
has an interior principle or drive to knowledge. He's following Aristotle, for whom every person by nature desires to know. Birds have an interior principle of flight and fish of swimming. When we are sick, our interior principle of well-being or health, that interior tendency towards our proper end, is compromised. The medical arts may heal this sickness, but they must do so by attending to the <coughs> interior principle which is already present in human nature, the interior drive towards health and the person's ability to heal themselves. The medicine itself is an exterior principle, but it must act in concert with the interior natural principles of the body. So in a question on human action, Aquinas says this, Thus the physician strengthens nature and employs food and medicine of which nature makes use for the intended end. The principal cause of healing for Aquinas is the body. The physician merely aids and strengthens the body to reach its proper end. Aquinas uses exactly the same framework to understand teaching. There is an interior principle of knowledge which intuitively perceives universal principles. The teacher must work with that interior principle to draw the student from ignorance to knowledge. So Aquinas writes, and this is the fourth quote, the teacher only brings exterior help as the physician who heals. But just as the interior nature is the principal cause of the healing, so the interior light of the intellect is the principal cause of knowledge. But both of these are from God. Therefore, as of God it is, is it written, who healeth all their thy diseases, so of him is it written, he that teacheth man knowledge, inasmuch as the light of his countenance is signed upon us, through which light all things are shown to us. Now in his famous discussion of the necessity of grace in the Prima Secundae, Aquinas uses exactly this distinction between an interior principle of action and an exterior principle. Human nature can be understood in two ways. First, in its pre-fallen integrity prior to sin. And secondly, after its corruption by sin. In neither state does the human person lie outside the need of God's help to perform any good. There is in that sense, as well as in many other senses, no natura pura. In an uncorrupted state, the human person can do what is proportionate to human nature by means of its interior principle of action. In a corrupted state, even what is natural cannot be achieved. Nevertheless, the hu human nature is not shorn of all power to act for the good. Some limited particular goods can be achieved, such as building dwellings and farming. So, Aquinas says, I think this, no, this quote's not, not on your handout, it's not too long. So Aquinas says, just as a sick man can of himself make some movements, yet he cannot be perfectly moved with the movements of one in health, unless by the help of medicine he be cured, so in our corrupted sinful state, 
We can make some movements towards limited goods, yet we need the gift of grace to achieve a supernatural good. In a corrupted state, humanity needs grace, and I quote, in order to be healed, and furthermore, in order to carry out works of supernatural virtue, which are meritorious. Beyond this, in both states, man needs the divine help that he may be moved to act well. So for Aquinas, humanity is not totally depraved such that it cannot perform any good. Sin has not corrupted absolutely. Nevertheless, the interior principle of action is compromised such that we can achieve only a limited range of goods which are connatural to us. Divine grace arrives as an external principle of action, which, as in the case of the medical and teaching arts, acts on and with the interior principle of action to move us to a natural and then eventually supernatural end. Saving grace, then, is not a purely exterior principle which has nothing whatsoever to do with our nature. To understand why this is important, take Aquinas' example of an action that is purely external, building a house. The bricks of the house have no natural interior propensity to be made into a building. That principle lies in the architect and the builder. The goal of being a house is entirely extrinsic to the bricks which form the house. It lies in the architect's and the builder's intention. Yet this is not the picture that Aquinas has in mind with respect to the medical and teaching arts, nor with respect to salvation. The medical and teaching arts involve an interior principle, the natural propensity to health and knowledge, which is met by an exterior principle, the physician's medicine or the teacher's knowledge, which draws the patient and student to greater health and knowledge. Likewise, grace, which de Lubac says grabs us from the inside, meets an interior principle to heal and reorder that principle to its natural end and towards a supernatural end it has always desired but could never attain of its own power. This is perhaps why Aquinas uses the image of medicine and healing throughout the summer in all manner of contexts, but particularly in the questions of habit, virtue and grace. These all involve healing, restoration and perfection of an interior principle by an exterior principle, away from the habits of illness, ignorance and sin, in such a way that the movement to health, knowledge or salvation becomes really our own. He even makes this clear in the question of the reception of baptism in the Tertiapars when he asks, should sinners be baptised? His answer is a little nuanced because he argues that sinners who are not even desirous of baptism should not be baptised. So in response to an objection that quotes Christ's words at Matthew 9:12, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick, Aquinas says this, and this is the final quote on your handout I think, the physician of our souls, i.e. Christ, works in two ways. First, inwardly, by himself, and thus, inwardly, first inwardly by himself, and thus he prepares man's will so that it wills good and hates evil. 
Secondly, he works through ministers by the outward application of the sacraments. And in this way, his work consists in perfecting what was begun outwardly. Therefore, the sacrament of baptism is not to be conferred save on those whom, in whom there appears to be some sign of their interior conversion, just as neither is bodily medicine given to a sick man unless he shows some sign of life. There has to be an interior principle, perhaps prepared by prevenient grace, upon which the saving grace of the sacraments can work. As an aside, the theme of health and salvation arises in an interesting way in the opening question of the Summa on Sacra Doctrina, Holy Teaching, as I've already remarked. Aquinas asked whether any, any further doctrine is required beyond philosophy, and he famously replies, it was necessary for man's salus, health, well-being, or salvation, that there should be a knowledge revealed by God before, besides philosophical science, built up by human reason. Firstly, indeed, because man is directed to God as to an end that surpasses the grasp of reason, but the end must first be known by men who are to direct their thoughts and actions to the end. Hence, it was necessary for the salvation of man that certain truths which exceed human reason should be made known to him by divine revelation. Philosophy is that science which belongs to human reason, but is compromised by sin. It is, if you like, the exercise of the interior principle of action that we call thought, which is orientated to knowledge as a natural end. Sacra Doctrina, that participation in God's own knowledge, the Scientia Divina, arrives first as an exterior principle of action to heal, reorientate, and perfect the action of human reason in the science of philosophy. It provides the ultimate end of human intellection, namely the Visio Dei. It consummates, but does not avoid or erase philosophy. So the image of salvation as healing, health and well-being works powerfully for Aquinas in a number of different contexts, not necessarily directly soteriology, though that's very often the background. He is deploying an image well known from scripture, and as we have seen, one that's prominent in patristic and early medieval theology. In my final and third, third and final section, I'd like to address two questions against this background. First of all, is the connection between illness, disease and sin on the one hand, and healing, health and salvation on the other, more problematic for us who live with the discoveries and powers of modern medicine. Secondly, what is the nature of the connection between sin and illness, health and salvation? Are illness, disease, healing and health simply metaphors for salvation? Or are they more substantial sacraments of salvation? Those are my questions in the last section. One of the reasons why a connection between sin and disease or disability, salvation and healing, is problematic in our modern context, is because of the implied connection between <coughs> sin and disease or disability. We are in some sense, and that sense can vary in different theologies, culpable for sin. 
Are we culpable when it comes to illness and disease? In some cases, yes. If we commit the sin of gluttony and become very overweight and develop diabetes and heart disease, there is clear culpability. But it is hard to imagine us seeing clinical depression, childhood cancer or genetic syndromes as conditions for which, we, for which anyone is culpable, <coughs> let alone the sufferer. That's not to deny that such illness needs treatment and we yearn for healing, but it is to suggest that the link between sickness and sin, which seems more straightforward in the ancient world, is more tendentious in our context. Now what I'm saying there is, is of course, um, controversial with respect to the nature and extent of sin. So a more hardline Augustinian view would suggest that sin is something the boundaries and consequences of which we cannot draw. So assigning personal moral culpability on that Augustinian um, view is not really the issue. Illness and disease as damaging our humanity are perhaps an aspect of a primordial sin which we cannot pinpoint and from which we need salvation. That's an alternative view that I'm not going to address this afternoon, but it is um, very much present in the tradition. There is a further set of challenges in using healing health and well-being as a figure for salvation, particularly with respect to the healing miracles in the Gospels. First, what of those who pray for healing with honesty and earnestness, particularly healing in the body, but do not receive healing? In such situations, it's common to psychologise healing and claim that those who pray for healing in the body receive a deeper healing in the soul, which enables them to cope with and come to terms with their physical ailment. Of course, that may very well be the case. But where does it leave the body? Are we prone to psychologise all modes of healing that lie beyond the purview of medicine and leave them in the hands of spiritual healers? Secondly, a related problem concerns the place of the church and spiritual practice with respect to health, well-being and salvation. Such emphases tempt us to think of the Christian life purely in modern therapeutic and functional terms Going to church makes one feel better and healthier and helps one to cope well at home and at work. Some of the time, I find that going to church makes me feel better. <laughs> of course, the Christian life is therapeutic at a level far deeper than the affective. We are healed, reconstituted and reborn in baptism as a new creation. There is a transformation, a healing, at the level of our very being. But the temptation to see Christianity in very affective, functional therapeutic terms is very great indeed. <coughs> there is nevertheless, I think, one common aspect of a likeness between sin and illness which remains more helpful in thinking about salvation, particularly salvation as the restoration of friendship or communion. Sin is profoundly isolating. The first effect of sin in Genesis 3 is the desire to hide. 
Sin makes us self-obsessed in such a way that genuine friendship with other people, let alone friendship with God, is compromised. Illness can have the same effect. If I suffer from an illness, particularly a long-term and debilitating illness of the kind cured by Christ in the Gospels, this establishes an experience of life which is profoundly isolating. You cannot experience my illness, my pain, as mine. There really is no general experience of illness or suffering, for what is borne lightly by one person is devastating for another. This came home to me very powerfully a few years ago, about 15 years ago, as the acting chaplain of Helen House, which was the first hospice dedicated um, purely to the care of children with life-limiting illness. And dealing with um, children with life-limiting illness and their families was, um, of course, deeply moving. It was very instructive because those families living with that experience, with that condition, found that their life, uh, the story of their life, the narrative of their life, the experience of life, was so fundamentally uh, different from um, the experience of life that their friends had, their friends before they'd had children, that, that they shared with their, their friends before they'd had children. It was so, now so fundamentally different. The, the experience of having a child with that condition set up a narrative that in, in one way was very isolating for those families, very isolating indeed. And yet, Helen has provided a, a new kind of community where they were drawn out of that isolation and they could share their experiences and, of course, their joys and their pains. So we need some sort of salvation from our isolation and self-concern, for salvation refers to our health and well-being, which is achieved only in friendship with God and with each other, a participation in the divine salus, the divine friendship within the Trinity, and communion with one another, the communion of saints. So what can we conclude about the image of salvation, healing, health and well-being? I can offer two comments. First, the healing miracles in the Gospels are not ends in themselves, but signs of adorning eschatological reality. They are sacramental in the broad sense, an indication that illness is an intrusion and an absence of the good in creation, which will, in the end, be restored. As we have seen, the patristic theologians and Aquinas make clear that healing seems futile if it is only temporary and has no significance beyond the material and the temporal. Remember Irenaeus, he said this, for what was his object in healing them to their original condition? if those parts which had been healed by him were not in a position to obtain salvation. For if it was merely a temporary benefit which he conferred, he granted nothing of importance to those who were the subjects of his healing. End quote. The thrust of the healing miracles in the Gospels is that every healing, however natural or supernatural in origin, has significance in relation to the eschaton and our deliverance, body and soul, into the salus of God. Secondly, Christian theology does not psychologize healing and leave the body behind. 
the theology of the incarnation, the doctrine of the resurrection of the body, and the polemic with the Gnosticisms of the ancient world ensured that the healing of the body retained the highest significance as a sign of the resurrection healing of the body at the end times. Every healing, however temporary, has this significance, and this allowed the medical arts, allied to the teaching arts which healed the intellect, to flourish in Christian antiquity in the Middle Ages. At the same time, this helps us to see why the salvation narratives which attach so readily to contemporary medicine and its extreme technological application in a movement such as transhumanism are perhaps mistaken. They take the link between healing, health and salvation as entirely literal. Salvation then becomes simply health or proper function in the material realm and the longest possible extension of material life, even the aspiration that we might avoid death altogether. This is a literal perversion of the theological theme of a salus, which is signified in creation, but has an eschatological horizon. Indeed, in the extreme aspirations of transhumanism, we find a perversion of Aquinas' notion of an exterior principle which heals, strengthens and perfects an interior principle. In transhumanist logic, the exterior principle of medical technology is entirely extrinsic, overcoming, not perfecting, the natural interior principles of action that are constitutive of the human person. Indeed, post-humanism, which is closely allied to transhumanism, is simply the denial that there is any human nature at all beyond the, the operations of our self-constituting will. We become gods unto ourselves, and any notion of sin, understood as a corruption of human nature in every aspect, becomes simply unintelligible. Finally, what is the nature of the relationship between healing and salvation? Is it merely a metaphor, a figure of speech? Or is it a kind of analogy, as illness is to healing is to health, so sin is to grace, is to salvation. That would be a kind of proportionate analogy. Healing seems to have a deeper significance, though, in scripture and patristic texts. The image of Christus Medicus is more than mere metaphor, for Christ literally heals the sick and raises the dead. It is rather the case that the ultimate horizon of all human beings is the divine salus, the divine well-being. Every healing, whether it be natural or supernatural, is a sign of and participation in that one common focus from which health gets its fundamental meaning. Natural and supernatural healing, in the broadest sense, are distinct, but do not stand over and against each other for reasons which Aquinas helps us to see. A natural healing occurs either by a purely interior principle of action, the body uh, restoring itself, or by the application of an exterior principle, medicine and the physician, which works with the human person's natural principle to bring it to health. The exterior principle perfects but does not erase or destroy the interior principle. So too with grace, except that grace grabs us as a gift from the divine in a more interior sense 
to lift us to a salus which we desire but can never attain by the work of an interior principle alone. But the significance of contemporary medicine is, in a sense, akin to the significance of the healing miracles of Christ, a sign of our eventual deliverance, body and soul, into the salus and sanctus of Almighty God. Thank you very much indeed.